Gracious God, Heavenly Father, glorious God, we thank you that we can come before your throne today through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let your word drive your truth deep into our hearts so that we are renewed and transformed, praising you evermore, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Last week I started off this, with this question, how would you describe heaven? We took a look and saw that our culture has a very different idea of what heaven is like. That there is Peter at the pearly gates, right? And that there are angels floating around on clouds playing harps, you know, that sort of thing. But when we took a look at Scripture... When we took a look at what it says in the book of Revelation, we found that heaven is much more glorious, much more awe-inspiring than anything the culture really speaks of. We found that Jesus is the door to heaven and that he calls with a trumpet-sounding voice. He says to John, come up here so that you may see the things that are about to pass. And when John enters into heaven, he sees the throne. And it speaks about the sovereignty of God. And then the one who sits upon the throne. How do you speak about God? And it says this in Revelation 4, verse 3, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and all around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Jasper, like a diamond-like substance, gemstone, speaking about the purity and the holiness of God. Carnelian red, speaking about the judgment or the wrath of God. And then the rainbow, speaking about God's covenant with his people. The vision of heaven that we have in Scripture is much more awe-inspiring than anything that the culture has to say. It's a type of awe that stops you in your tracks. And actually, there are two types of reactions that we have from the biblical authors regarding a glimpse of heaven. One is fear and the realization that we are sinful before a holy God. Isaiah chapter 6 He writes, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So there's that one reaction, but the other reaction is of praise and worship. Coming before the throne of God, the only thing that there really is, is praise and and worship. So this morning we're going to get into another glimpse of heaven, and there are sermon notes for those who want to follow along. We're going to take a look at who is around the throne, the elders, the creatures, and then the heavenly songs of praise. So let's begin with the elders. Revelation chapter 4 verse 4. Around the throne were 24 Uh, around, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So the picture we have 
24 elders sitting on their thrones around the throne of God. You could either have this as a circle around the throne, or you could have six on each side of the throne. Doesn't really matter. But we have a picture of 24 elders. So who are these elders? Are these angelic beings? Are they redeemed saints? Are they heavenly creatures of some sort? Who are these elders? Well, when you start to take a look at what Scripture has to say, we find a couple things. Elders in the Old and New Testament are appointed leaders. They are God-appointed leaders to help with the other saints, to help with judgment with the saints. If you go to Numbers chapter 11, starting verse 16, Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. We see that God appoints people sharing at least in part with the rule, with the judgment of the saints. You find this, by the way, in the New Testament as well. First uh, Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy says, Do not neglect, neglect the gifts you have, which were given you by prophecy when the counts of elders laid their hands on you. By the way, in Greek, the word elder is presbyter. Does that sound familiar at all? It's where we get the word Presbyterian. And it actually speaks to how a church is organized and the rule of leadership within a church. And it also, by the way, says 24 elders, right? 24. So what's the number 24 mean? It's hard to discern because the, it's not quite clear, but tradition has it that it was 12 from the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel, and then the 12 apostles. There's some evidence for that, some against it. I'm actually pretty comfortable saying that this would at least represent the 12 tribes of Israel and then the 12 apostles. But these elders are wearing something. They are wearing white robes. While angels sometimes appear in white, not all the times, but sometimes appear in white, it is specifically the saints who are clothed in white robes. Revelation chapter 7, starting verse 13, it says, Then one of the elders addressed me, that is addressing John, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So here we see that these white robes actually have a gospel message for them. What did God say to, say to Isaiah chapter 1? Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. 
Here we find them robed in white, that their sins were cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. So even here what the the elders are wearing, there's a gospel proclamation right there. Also, Revelation chapter 3, verse 5 says, the one who conquers, in essence, the one who has faith continually, they will be robed in white garments. So we have elders robed in white. We also have crowns that they wear on their head and thrones. So the crown symbolizes authority. Again, going back to that authority that the elders had. We see that in Kings throughout the Old and New Testament. But here the crowns that they're wearing are a little bit different than we think of as kings in the Old and or New Testament. It's a different type of crown. Because what does that crown symbolize? Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. So this crown that they're wearing symbolizes life. Also, uh, Paul, again, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. So what is this crown? It is a crown of life. It is a crown of righteousness. It is a crown that you cannot earn. It is given to you. In very simple terms, the crown symbolizes the glory bestowed by Christ and the eternal life we have in Christ Jesus. Thus, the crown that they wear symbolizes something more precious than gold, that eternal life and the righteousness bestowed upon them by Christ. And then we also have them on thrones, don't we? Again, that throne representing a reigning with, in a lesser degree, the reigning with Christ Jesus. And by the way, crowns and thrones are never given to angels. Angels never have crowns or, th- or thrones. Hebrews chapter 1 says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So angels don't get that. Another study we can do is you actually don't become angels when you go to heaven. You are redeemed saints. Something more glorious than angels. So who are the elders? The elders are the redeemed saints on whom Jesus has bestowed the privilege of reigning alongside him. That's who is around the throne. Also around the throne are four creatures. Going on with our reading from Revelation, starting with verse 6. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, 
are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is quite a sight, isn't it? To be able to see these four creatures. And what John saw was very similar to what Ezekiel saw and what Isaiah saw. Ezekiel called them cherubim and Isaiah called them seraphim. In Ezekiel's vision, the cherubim had four faces, each like a lion, ox, man, and eagle. And by the way, what's the singular word for cherubim? It is cherub. Now, where do you find cherubs? We see them normally on Valentine's Day, don't we? These little chubby boy men, something with wings, right? It is nothing like the cherubim pictured in the Bible. Sorry to blow the bubble, burst the bubble on that one. But when you see that, all that Valentine stuff, no, no. The cherubim says, like faces, like a, an ox, a man, an eagle, a lion. By the way, there's been much speculation about what these represent. Early church fathers tried to have them represent one of the Gospels. Matthew being the man, Mark the ox, and so on. Uh, that's just speculation. I think it's interesting, but I'm not going to put any weight on that whatsoever. I just want to stick with what Scripture says. By the way, John doesn't call them cherubim or seraphim. It says the living ones, literally, the living ones or the living beings. Here we have living creatures. I think that's a good enough description for it. And although he doesn't specifically say cherubim or seraphim, there's enough of a relationship between what they look like. So I thought it would be interesting to see the, the connection, at least, between the cherubim and the living ones around the throne. So we actually find the cherubim throughout the Old Testament. We find that first in the Garden of Eden. And he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So in the very beginning, we find a cherubim. Where else do we find that? I've mentioned this before a couple times, but I think it bears repeating. We also find that on the veil, in the tabernacle, in the desert, they had the holy place and the holy of holies. And separating the holy place to the holy of holies was the veil, and on the veil were representations of cherubim. And then when you go into the Holy of Holy Places, you find the Ark of the Covenant. And what do you find on the Ark of the Covenant? Cherubim. As a matter of fact, God gave very lengthy instructions for them. I'm going to read just part of this. This is from Exodus chapter 25. And this is just part of it. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. The mercy seat is the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Their faces to one another toward the mercy seat shall, their, shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the Ark 
and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I have given you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So what are the cherubim doing? They seem to be guarding the holiness of God, guarding what is most precious and holy, and they also point to God, pointing out his glory. That's what the cherubim do in the Old Testament. That's what they do in the vision that Ezekiel had, the seraphim in Isaiah, and now in Revelation. What are they doing around the throne? They are singing praise to God. So now let's go to the song of praise. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive honor, glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It is really difficult, and I have struggled. How do you capture the grandeur, the majesty of the song that they're singing? It's really almost impossible. I like how John MacArthur laid this out a little bit. He says in chapter 4 and chapter 5, there are... Uh, five hymns of praise and they grow they start off with four the four living creatures and then you add 24 elders so now you've got 28 voices and then you put in harps and you put in orchestration and then by chapter 5 verse 13 all of creation is singing the praise and honor of glory. So it's like this majestic song that starts and just crescendos. And it begins with the living creatures. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is a song about the power, the majesty, the omnipotence of God. His all-encompassing power it is a song of praise. And when you say holy, 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 to say holy three times in that level, it talks about the highest holy you could ever imagine. There's nothing holier than that above all of creation. Nothing can be added to it. And to say holy three times also speaks to the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We could actually do a really big study on the number three here, but let this suffice for right now. The other aspect that they, they say, who was and is and is to come, it speaks to the eternal nature of God. 
who was and is and is to come. He is forevermore. There is no beginning and no end. And by the way, though this is in chapter 4, I'm just going to highlight this. This is speaking to God the Father, but it's the same thing with God the Son. Jesus himself says this, Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. God the Father, God the Son. So you have the heavenly creatures singing this praise of the eternal nature of God, His power, His glory, His majesty. And now you add to that the 24 elders. And they say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So whereas the living creatures are speaking about his power and his holiness and his majesty and his eternal nature, now the elders are adding on to that, giving thanks for his creative power for all of creation. The psalmist echoed this too. It's not that we just find this in Revelation. If you take a look at Psalm 86, the psalmist writes, There's none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You are God alone. This is the song of praise in heaven. Wouldn't you love to hear that? On earth, I kept thinking, is, is there anything that comes even close? And I think there might be something that at least inspires us, comes close a little bit. It was written in 1741 by George Frederick Handel. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The Messiah, that is the oratorio, the Messiah. And there's one part that you do know. It's called the Hallelujah Chorus. Now, do you know what the tradition is, by the way, for the Hallelujah Chorus? Stand. I'm going to play 90 seconds of the Hallelujah Chorus. Would you please stand for a moment as you are able? You may be seated. But that is the one you just, I mean, when it's the full orchestra and you're there, you are inspired. It draws you into praise. King George II, do you want to know why we actually stand for that? Because King George II, on the premiere, stood during this course. Now, it is never clear. He never said exactly why he was standing. There's a number of explanations, but I think the easiest one is he understood that even though he was king with great power on earth, there was a king of kings and lord of lords much, much greater than him. And so he stood and bowed his head in recognition of the King of kings and Lord of lords. So before the heavenly throne, what did the elders do? They cast their crowns. When there was the singing, they took 
what was most precious because they knew that eternal life, that the righteousness, that any power, anything that they had came from God himself. Before the throne, with praise unending, they cast everything aside in the presence of our Lord, in the presence of God. So I guess this morning, when we come before the Lord, as you do, are you willing to cast everything aside? Are you willing to be filled with that praise of His glory, of His majesty and might? Are you willing to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, glorious God, we thank you. We thank you for the glimpse of your glory. We thank you for your love for us in Christ Jesus. We thank you that through him, we too will be clothed in robes of righteousness that are cleansed by his blood. And so this morning, we give you thanks and praise and glory and honor to you, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope that you've been blessed by this message. If you have any questions or you would like to grow deeper in your faith, please visit our website at joyccc.com. Again, that's joyccc.com. 